Well, good morning. It is good to, good to see all of you this morning. And uh, um, really, I'd like to say on, on, on behalf of uh, all of our staff team and um, for Julie and I, it is a blessing for us to, to serve with this church family that uh, you indeed have been for the last 15 years family for Julie and I. And uh, we thank the Lord for you. You know how pastors get together in meetings, pastors among pastors. And what do they talk about? Huh? They talk about their churches, don't they? I love talking about you folks. I, I, I love the, the, uh, those who serve in various ministry and lay leadership and uh, just the family that we have together. It's a, you are a blessing and encouragement to us. I love the fact that we can be involved together and participate together in things and needs in our community like Freedom House discipling and, and uh, open house ministry sheltering. Um, that is the church being the church um, that is sounding those ringing bells still in the midst of heartache and tragedy. Um, we haven't been able to do all the things that we would normally do at this time of year in this Advent season. One of those things we missed this year was, was um, Christmas jazz. And we order calendars that we can have available to give to people who come to Christmas jazz. And that time has come and gone. And some of the calendars are still here. And you know, once you get into January, calendars aren't of much use any longer. So if you have need of a calendar or know anybody that does, they are still some on the back table there behind the sound booth. So if you remember that, after the service, there are calendars available. Well, it is the Sunday after Christmas. Now, you're probably wondering, well, what is Pastor Bob doing up there this morning? The Sunday after Christmas, isn't that when, like, the youth pastor preaches or something? But, uh, no, I wanted to. So, um, there's, there's one more part of the Christmas story, this Sunday after Christmas, that I wanted to talk about this morning. I hope you have had a wonderful and joyful Christmas weekend. You've been remembering together with others God's love for us, God's coming near, even if we haven't been able to come as near to one another this year as we might like. There's kind of a, a childlike anticipation in, around the Christmas season, isn't there? There's this anticipation and hope and expectation that, that things could actually be all that we want and hope for them to be without any disappointment. And yet, our adult awareness too easily and quickly intrudes on that hopeful innocence, doesn't it? In fact, on Christmas Eve in Nigeria, terrorists again struck Christian villages and homes and uh, brutalized and murdered many. On Christmas morning in Nashville, Tennessee, the... the, the um, Joyful squeals and shouts and Christmas bells were interrupted by sirens and explosions and mayhem and death. And we wonder, why? How can this be? If there is, in fact, peace on earth, goodwill, God's gracious favor toward 
humanity, then why do these things continue? Why the ongoing troubles of daily life? That tension is expressed in the carol that we just sang. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. That carol was written actually in 1863. That's interesting because our church was founded when? 1863. And that carol was written originally as a poem, Christmas Bells, by the well-known, famous American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Now, I only know Henry W. Longfellow because he was one of the authors on this children's card game called Authors. Louisa May Alcott was there and Wadsworth Longfellow and several others. But he writes the words to that song that were later popularized in American culture by Bing Crosby in 1956 and redone again in a new way, much closer to the way that we sang it this morning, by Casting Crowns in 2008. Now, why did they change the melody? Why did they shift it up a bit? Because they wanted, they knew that their generation needed to hear this. There was theology and God's truth in these carols, but the carols had become so common that we didn't hear the truth anymore. And, it, and we would sing, um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, in the same way that we would sing um, a Rock Around the Christmas Tree. And it just, you lose the meaning. And so they changed it up a little bit so that we would again think about the words. When we should say them, when we should sing them, and then we would hear them. That, song, that poem that Longfellow wrote... He actually writes the poem out of tragedy. That's why the lines that you hear. In despair I bow my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. 1863. It's right in the midst of the worst of the Civil War. And Longfellow's own son has signed up, has enlisted, has joined the Union armies just months earlier against his father's wishes. And he's now in the midst of those same battles. 1863 is two years after Longfellow has lost his second wife in death. Now, his first wife was tragically lost when she was bearing their first child. She was six months along, and in a tragic miscarriage, mother and child were both lost. After years of grief, he marries again. They have six children together, and his wife has clipped locks from the children's hair, and she's putting those in envelopes. She's sealing the envelopes with sealing wax from a candle. And somehow between the wax and the flame of the candle, her clothing catches on fire. And she's burned so badly that she dies the next day. In fact, Longfellow trying to put out the flames, his own face is burned so badly that that's why he wore that long bushy beard afterward that you've seen in pictures. He struggled with with battling depression for the next 20 years until his own passing in 1883. 
He writes those words, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, he said. Out of the tragic circumstances that he saw in his own life, that he felt aching his own heart, as well in circumstances he could easily see around him. We too are used to that uneasy rhythm between joy and sorrow, aren't we? We love holidays and we look for joy in them only to at times be disappointed. In fact, we, we experience some of that, we taste some of that in the month after Christmas. In the month after Christmas, December yields to January with its gloomy gray days and undecked halls, and the home will just look, not look near as warm and joyful as it has over this last month or so. Christmas lights are swapped out for ultraviolet happy lights in our attempts to stave off the sad effects of seasonal affective disorder. I won't ask how many of you have happy lights. If you do, please use them. January, it seems, we box up and put away our hope for another year. The realities of life, the daily grind settle in. And even through the the daylight is supposed to be longer day by day. It doesn't feel like it yet. It was the month after Christmas. Well, in the Christmas story, in the, in the nativity narrative, there are also, in the book of Matthew, some what I'll call January episodes. It was the month after Christmas. And in, these, in some of these episodes, we see some of the harshness of the reality. In the midst of good news of great joy, there is the peace broken by explosive tragedy. And why does Matthew include that in his nativity narrative? Why does he seem to disrupt the theme of, look what God is here, God has come, peace on earth, grace for humanity, now life could be good, and yet it won't be. What do I mean? Well, let's pick up the story in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, of course, Joseph is given the word that, the, that, that, the, that Mary's with child by the Holy Spirit, that um, this is God's doing. It's a, it's a, a greater fulfillment. It's an even greater meaning poured into Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. They come to Bethlehem, and they come to Bethlehem, and the Magi will find them there. Why? Because Micah had predicted very specifically that that is where the Messiah would be born, the one who would rule Israel. And so they've come to Bethlehem, and the, the time for his birth comes near. And after he's born, there's a visit from Magi, these wise men in Matthew chapter 2. We don't know if there were three. We know there were three gifts. There are gifts of gold, a tribute to a king. There's a gift of frankincense, a gift of worship for he who is our high priest. There is a gift of myrrh, that which is used for embalming the dead because he will die for us. They bring these gifts and they come looking for him and they ask around Jerusalem, tell us please, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Well, that must have got people excited. 
Well, it got people concerned. First of all, they're from the east. They're from, they're from the area of formerly Persia. This is the area that Rome really doesn't control. This is the area where there will continue to be the Parthian Wars. There, there's threats to the east, and these magi come from the east looking for a different king than Rome's king named Herod over Israel. And so that catches Herod's attention and sets everybody else on edge because everybody knows what a brutal, insanely paranoid king that Herod is. In fact, he has recently had two of his own sons executed. Those who were going to inherit his kingdom, he has executed and said because they, he believed they were plotting against him to try to get the kingdom early. And this is Herod. What will Herod do when there's a new king being asked about round town? Well, Herod has the Magi come to him, inquires of them diligently. When did they first see this star? And, and if, you find the, if you find this king, please come and report to me so that I can go and worship him also. But the Magi are warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Herod means to harm the child. Joseph is warned in a dream to take Mary and the child and go to Egypt. Matthew does another one of his very strange applications of prophecy as if he says, um, this fulfills that which is written out of Egypt I called my son. But this is, this is, this is done to, to protect the child. And yet Herod, when he finds the Magi have disappeared, he is enraged. They have slipped away without reporting back to him. And in verse 16 of Matthew 2, when Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious furiously angry, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. Now, that sounds horrendous. Now, Bethlehem is a small village. In Bethlehem and in all the surrounding region, quite likely, if the population was around 1,000, is what a lot of historians, kind of a generous estimation, then uh, that was probably around 20 young lads, 20 age 2 and younger, that were killed in Herod's brutality. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And Matthew seems to grab that expression out of Jeremiah to speak the grief of the mothers, the families, whose children have been so brutally murdered because of this paranoid King Herod. And yet, can you imagine them in despair, bowing, bowing their heads, there is no peace on earth, they said. For hate is strong and mocks the song, mocks the angel's song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. What has Matthew done here? Matthew is, is honest with us. He, in, he includes the way things really are as he describes to us what it is that God has done. One of the things that you can be comfortable in and confident in the Bible is that God will be real with you. 
God will tell you how things really are. He will tell you how things really are with him. He will tell you how things really are with the world. He will tell you how things really are with you. And he'll tell you what he has done for you. We want to, especially in a festive time of year, we want to sweep everything else to the side and just for, just for now, let's just focus on joy. And they might expect, the Son of God has come? Emmanuel, God with us, finally God's deliverance, that this is a greater fulfillment of that which was echoed by that promise that, that the oppressors would not prosper, that God will be with us, God will, be, will deliver us from those who threaten us. That's Isaiah 7. And yet, where is the one who was God with us? If God is with us, how has this happened? And these mothers of Bethlehem weep because they are no more. It's tragedy in the midst of the nativity. What do we do with that? What is Matthew doing with this? And then Matthew quotes this, a voice is heard in Ramah. And he's taking another prophetic utterance out of another context that actually, at least on the surface, has nothing to do with the nativity and the coming and the birth of the Messiah. What is he doing here? Is he just using a phrase to express grief or is there something more? Well, I think there's something more. That's why I'm building it up. That's why I, I brought this passage this morning. I didn't want to just discourage you and bring you to grief with mothers of Bethlehem in Jerusalem this morning. Herod's horror is no surprise, surely. And yet, God is in the midst of this. And we, we, we need to face, and right up front, early in his gospel, Matthew brings us to this reality. The Son of God has come into the world because look how messed up, how broken, how brutal, how horrible the world actually is. Look what goes on here. We're supposed to see it face to face. The babes in Bethlehem raise a tension that actually echoes down into the halls of our own lives. We have this same question. In fact, we're... We're so accustomed to the reality that life ends in death that we think that's normal. Easily forgetting that the whole notion of death and loss and suffering and heartache is actually an intrusion into God's good which he made for us and to be with us in. But here we are. I expressed it in a poem. Well, I borrowed a poem and I made it my own. "'Twas the month after Christmas, and all through the land, the Magi had gone, and now grief was at hand. For Herod still rampaged and Romans still ruled. Babies were murdered. How can men be so cruel? It seems God has departed from out of the land, leaving us hopeless." How can faith stand? The setting before Bethlehem is also our question. We push it to the side, but it will tend to pop up again at the very worst of times. And because it will, 
for you and for others that you care about, we need to be ready to answer it. Where is God when this has happened? How could God allow such to happen? What hope can there be if this is in fact our reality? Herod's murder is not contrary to the good news the angels proclaim. In fact, Herod's, murder, or Herod's murderous ways shows how deep the need for the gospel actually is. We think that if God would just do something to make things a little better than they are, we don't need for God to do something. We need for God to change everything. We, we, we want for God. We long to God. We, we, we don't expect too much from God. We actually expect too little. We want for God to stop some of it. In fact, what God does is step into all of it, right into the middle of it, seeing all of it for what it actually is. Herod contrasts something to us about Jesus. Herod is this wicked, evil king who for his own selfless reasons, he would murder, take the lives of innocent ones because he fears they might rebel against him in an attempt to somehow preserve a few more years of his own kingdom. Jesus, on the other hand, is the innocent one who will give his life for those who have actually rebelled against God in order to not give them a few good years, but to give them eternal life. Herod shows us something about the legitimate king, the real king, God's son of David, who has in fact come, and shows us our need by contrast. But Herod also shows us something about ourselves. Now, I don't mean to say this morning that you are like Herod. But I do mean to say that there is something of what is in Herod in all of us. Every generation seems to have some particularly, especially evil ones like Herod among us. But all of us share something of that depravity. For instance, all of us, all of us um, have this share with Herod a propensity to put ourselves in our own interests ahead of the interests of others. All of us tend to be controlled in one way or another and directed by and influenced by our own fears and insecurities. Boy, that's middle school, isn't it? What are they thinking? What are they saying? And it's the rare individual indeed who assumes that everybody in middle school is saying good and glorious things about them, right? That's not the way it normally goes. And that probably points to other problems. Yet in the midst of these realities of how we are, we need to hold on to God's realities. We need to, we need to hold on to faith in that what God has said is actually true even when our circumstances scream against it. And that's what's going on here in the Nativity story. It still seems, can any of this really be true if such a thing can still be done? If God's own son has to be rescued out the back door and evacuated because such a murderous plot is even possible when the Son of God has come, Emmanuel, God with us. That's the tension that we're in right now, and Matthew explains it with a quote out of Jeremiah 31. So that's where I've got to go. We've got to go to Jeremiah 31, and if we're going to understand what's going on here from Jeremiah 31, 
We'll, we will, it'll be good just to get a little context in, in Jeremiah. Who is Jeremiah? Now, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet of Israel. He's different than Isaiah. Isaiah, I might say, is the prophet of last opportunity. Isaiah once more holds out the opportunity for the people of God to come back to their God, to turn from their ways, and to to bow before their God and Savior, and he will receive them. But if they don't, trouble is coming. And they don't. And Jeremiah follows Isaiah, and Jeremiah is the prophet who declares, trouble is here. There is no escape of it. It is fixed. It is done. It is established. Babylon is coming. And, and whereas as Isaiah told King Hezekiah, you trust the Lord and those who surround your city, the Lord will defend you against them. Jeremiah doesn't tell that to the king in his day. When Babylon surrounds the city of Jerusalem, Jeremiah warns the king, buddy, you need to surrender. God has done this. God has brought this. This is his discipline and consequence brought upon his people for their own rebellion against him. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet because so much of his prophecy deals with the consequences of of their unwillingness to believe and follow God. The coming judgments, the discipline. Yet in the midst of all of that trouble, all of the lamentations of Jeremiah, There are also words of restoration and hope. You see, being God's people in the land, Israel is something like a a country, a people, like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. As Adam and Eve are expelled from God's presence and out of the place that he had made for them, so also Israel as a people is expelled from God's presence and away from the place that he had made for them. They are experiencing the consequences of their own rebellion and going their own way. And yet, it would seem that God is done with them, but he is not. He is not. And Jeremiah includes in the midst of of this call to judgment words of restoration and hope to remind of that. So let's let's review the context of Jeremiah 31. I hope you've turned there. Jeremiah 31 in your own Bible or in your own device. In Jeremiah 31, let's back up and just get the last two verses of Jeremiah 30. It catches that theme of judgment and consequence. They have abandoned their God, and so God seems to abandon them. Verse 23 of Jeremiah 30. Behold the storm of the Lord. The wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. And God's judgment has come. But now we turn to 31. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans or all the tribes of Israel and they shall be my people. Remember, Israel had already divided into ten clans in the north and two in the south, Judah and Benjamin in the south. And all the others sometimes are called Israel, sometimes they're called Ephraim. They've already been carried away by Assyria. They're already scattered across the world. They're not just a bunch of them moved to a new location and could be brought back. They have been scattered. They're nowhere to be found, so it would seem. And yet God says he's going to bring 
He will be the God of all the clans of Israel. They will be his people. The, the, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Verse 6, there will be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. That's the northern tribes. The hill country of Ephraim, arise, let us go to Zion, to the Lord our God. When they broke away from the, from the rest of the nation, when they went their own way, they also said, we have to establish our own temple, our own worship, otherwise our people will return to Jerusalem. And the two will be reunited again. And so they formed their own idolatrous temples as well. And yet the word again will go out to let us go to Zion and let us worship the Lord our God. Verse 8, Behold, I bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest part of the earth. With weeping they shall come. With pleas of mercy I will lead them back. He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Their life will be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. My people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. In the middle of all that restoration promised, in the middle of all that, there is this tragic word in verse 15. We've heard it already. In verse 15 of Jeremiah 31, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. It seems like a loss that is unrecoverable. There's no way back. There's no future hope. What is being described there? Ramah. Ramah is a place on what's called the Benjamin Plateau. It's just to the north of Jerusalem. It's a wide open space in the midst of the highlands of the Judea hill country. It's a crossroads of Israel. It's kind of like the big traffic circle in the center of the land. And, and there the north-south highways called the Ridge Route and the, and the east-west highways coming up out of Jericho and going down to the coastal plains. Those highways converge at this big open plateau. This was where Saul of Gibeah was from. This would be a natural place for the leader of Israel to come from. And this was the place that the Babylonians gathered people, not only out of Jerusalem, but out of all the surrounding towns and villages. And they gathered them together in that big open bowl of a plateau they're near Ramah, and that's where the caravans carried them away, out of Israel, off to Babylon. And so here in Jeremiah's prophecy, the reality of that captivity, and Rachel, Jacob's first wife, although she only bore two of the sons of Jacob, she was his first chosen wife. She speaks, she grieves. She was the one who dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin, whom she named the son of her sorrow, right near this place. And, and Jeremiah picks that up to express the moment as if Rachel, as the mother of the nation, is weeping for her children as they are carried away into captivity. And she says, for they are no more. They're gone. It is hopeless. There is despair. Think about the worst tragedy that could befall a family. 
for they are no more. It's an irrecoverable loss. But then, the prophet continues. That is their reality. That is their experience. Even as he is telling them of future restoration that will come, this is our reality in the presence. We are being banded together and chained together and led away as captives to another land, never to see our homes again. Israel is lost, gone, irrecoverable. But the prophet calls them to see past these tragic tragic present circumstances to the future hope and restoration. Look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will come back to their own country. They will come back in personal repentance for their guilt. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. God loves them even, even though he, they have rebelled against them. Verse 20. Is not Ephraim my dear son? Is he not my darling child? As often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Even though God has confronted his people over and over again, his love is still for them as his love is still for you. That is who he is. He cannot deny himself. God will restore them. He calls his people to believe and receive that restoration. Verse 21, set up road markers for yourself. Make yourselves guideposts. Kind of Hansel and Gretel here. Leave breadcrumbs as you go out because you will be coming back. How's he going to do that? How is God going to do that? How is God God going to restore his people into genuine and real worship with him after all that they have done? And now, what has been done to them? Skip down in, in Jeremiah 31 to verse 31. It's interesting, the, um, earlier on as we were reading in, in the early part of Jeremiah um, 31, it says, later you will understand. And we get, to verse, we get here to verse 31 of the chapter, and he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will no longer teach, each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. That's an interesting phrase. We think of the new covenant in terms of forgiveness. We think of the new covenant in terms of being restored again and being forgiven and being given a place of eternal life. But the central key of, of the new covenant here with God is they will know me. No more will people be called to know me because they will know me. Even as you know one another in your family, you will be again in right and easy and comfortable in what you were made for, relationship with God, Him knowing you, but you knowing Him. How can that be with what's become of us? He says, they will each know me because for 
I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. All that we've done is removed out of the way. It has been dealt with. It has been paid for. It has been fully met so that God, God's wrath and judgment is completely satisfied so his mercy and love for us is free to openly embrace us. And God hasn't done anything wrong to make it so. In the light of God's promise, what does Jeremiah do? In the midst of Israel going out of the land, in the midst of the captivity started, that it's going to be at least 70 years according to Jeremiah's own prophecy, what does Jeremiah do next following this, following this prophecy in chapter 31? That yes, the reality of carried away Rachel weeping for her children, and yet God says, no, 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 dry your eyes. Hold your tears. I will bring them back. I will bring you back. What does Jeremiah do? He goes and buys a field. He has the deed sealed and registered with the county courthouse. Why on the day when you're being carried away from Babylon, and maybe you can carry a few coins in your pocket with you that might make life easier when you get there, why would you use those precious coins to buy somebody else's field to a land that you'll never come back to Unless you will. Jeremiah steps into his faith. He puts the money down. He buys the land. He buys the land when the market is low. Now's the time to invest because we are coming back here. That's what Jeremiah is doing. There's, this is a message of hope in the midst of present circumstances. So now take that. Take where that phrase of loss and grief in the midst of Jeremiah come from. Take all of that meaning, that whole story now back into Matthew chapter 2. And what Matthew is doing right in the front of his story, the Son of God has come. Emmanuel, God with us. Good news of great joy for all people, a Savior. He will save his people from their sin. The angel tells Joseph, but can he save us from Herod's sin and brutality? Yes, he will. We're not there yet, but he will bring them back. Dry the tears. End the weeping. There will be joy, even if our present circumstances scream against it. He will save us from our sin. He will put an end to sin. He will bring in everlasting light righteousness. We are not there yet, Matthew says. But we will be. We wait in hope. And don't let present circumstances steal away your hope. Don't let present circumstances whisper into your soul that it must not be true. Keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears. There is a reward for your work, says the Lord. They shall come back. There is hope for your future. The darkness of the canvas highlights the brightness of his glory. The, the brutality of humanity shouts our need for God's mercy, which is the ongoing message through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. C.S. Lewis picks up on that idea about what trouble and tragedy does for us. God whispers to us, he says, in our pleasures. When times are good, we might hear the whisper of God and we might feel his countenance lifted toward us. He says God speaks to us in our consciences and when you are guilty and when you know it, you hear something from God's Spirit. 
except as we continue to ignore it, calluses grow and the voice of the Spirit becomes softer and quieter. We don't hear it the same. God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pains. Pain and suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Indeed, in the days of Herod, the world had grown deaf. In the days of Herod, the world by and large was no longer listening for God. And in our generation as well. Both the prosperity and the tragedy has plugged our ears and we no longer hear. And yet in the midst of the worst of trouble, something in our own soul cries out to God and says, God, how could this be? How could you allow this? Don't let God, tragedy tell you that God is not true. Your worst experiences only serve to confirm that everything that God says is true. What he said about the world is true. What he said about sin and brokenness is true. It cannot be denied. Our own experiences testify to it. What he has said about my own propensity to sin and to serve myself and my own need for his Savior, it's true. Herod's brutality still continues in the world, and so does God's grace and God's restoration in hope. It was the month after Christmas, and all through the land. The Magi had gone, and now grief was at hand. For Herod still rampaged, and Romans still ruled. Babies are murdered. How can men be so cruel? It seems God departed from out of the land. Leaving us hopeless, how can faith stand? But the promise is true. God's Son has come. Christ is our Savior. His work will be done. The road to God's rescue is the way of the cross. Before we reach glory, we will endure loss. But in the midst of the pain, we'll wait for Christ's day, we'll tell of His love. We'll walk in his way. It will be difficult for Jesus' own disciples to grab hold of the fact that the Son of Man is come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It will be hard for them to grab hold of the fact that he, had, he does not become the victim of Rome. He triumphs over Rome. He triumphs over sin and death by his death for us in our place and raises again from the dead. There is hope. Don't let the present circumstances, whatever they seem like, whatever they feel like, steal away your confidence that God will be found true, though every man and every doubt a liar. There are people around us who need the church to be those Christmas bells. The imagery in the poem and in the song says that in the midst of all the tragedy, in the midst of all the troubles and horror, that the church still sings out this thing called the gospel. The bells still ring, voices sing and chant, and they still say. And it's hard to believe, but believe they may. 
we will still be God's church in the midst of trouble because God is shouting to people around us. And he'll show them hope through you and me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you do, would you do that? Lord, we will, we will take trouble. Lord, we will endure in hope, confident in you, if you choose to use trouble as the backdrop on the canvas to show your glory, to paint your mercy and your grace in the midst of human sinfulness and brokenness. Father, if our fallenness becomes so painfully obvious that we are desperate for your grace, Lord, let your grace be seen. Father, let us be the ones to sing, to tell, to ring with your joy and the reality of your peace to people around us. In the midst of the despair, in the midst of the hate that mocks the song, Lord, use us for your grace, your mercy, your hope. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.